Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm John Snow and this week's guest is Mick Lynch. Mick is the General Secretary of Britain's largest specialist transport trade union, the RMT. In May 2022, the RMT announced that its members had voted overwhelmingly in favour of strikes in a dispute over pay, jobs and conditions. At the time, they said it was the biggest endorsement of industrial action by railway workers since privatisation. But the dispute remains unresolved and 20,000 railway workers will now walk out over three more days on the 20th, 22nd and 29th of July. All this is set against a cost of living crisis and a wave of industrial action that has included teachers, nurses, junior doctors and university staff. And while the government has just made a pay offer to millions of public sector workers, they are also looking to curb strike disruption with a new bill. There's lots to talk about here, and whilst Mick's arguments divide opinion, his skills as a speaker have won many fans, including the New York Times, who called him an unlikely national hero, who eviscerates hostile interviewers. Let's see how I get on. Mick, you were elected General Secretary of the RMT in 2021, and this job brought you into the national spotlight. But can you please give me a quick summary of your career before you joined the Executive Committee? So immediately before I was uh, a railway worker, I'm an electrician by trade, did an apprenticeship, started in 1978. And so immediately before I was fixing trains, Eurostar service, which runs here from St Pancras to Europe. So I was underneath trains, fitting brake blocks, changing wheels, fixing electronics, doing round-the-clock shifts. That's the way our union works. You have to be on the tools, a railway or transport worker, to become an official of the union. We don't have anyone that drops in from university or from outside. It's, that's the complete culture of our union. I think it's one of our strengths that the only people that can lead the union are people who have been the union, in effect. So I've had a lifetime at work. I'm a novice on the railway in some ways. I've only been on it 30 years. A lot of our members do the full life sentence, so to speak, 48 years at work. Whereas I started in 
private engineering. We had factories in London, John. Can you remember that in nineteen mm. in the nineteen seventies when I started work? So I did my apprenticeship making machinery, which we exported, which is another thing that people probably haven't heard of anymore. So I used to do all that, and then when that closed down, I worked in construction. And I got blacklisted from there and went on the railway. You were about keeping the show on the road or on the rail yeah. rather than actually driving a train. Yeah, I'm from the, what we call the skill grade fitters and the engineers that look after the, the rolling stock. So I wasn't train crew. I worked in a depot full of engineering workers, which is my background, really. So the Rail Maritime and Transport Union, approximately how many people are in your union and, and, and what kind of workers make up your membership? Yeah, so we've got just over 80,000 members uh, struggling a bit at the minute because of the layoffs we've got. So we've got the traditional national rail network, so a lot of train crew, i.e. guards, catering staff, people working in the stations doing ticket office, but also the dispatch, customer service. We've got people in my grades, which is the fleet engineering, servicing the trains and getting them out on the road. We And we've got, of course, the people out on the track you see out in Orange every day repairing the railway, uh, maintaining it. We've got the signalers, a very important grade, who do all the scheduling of the trains. We've got people doing overhead line. We've got London Transport uh, in the underground. and We've got the maritime part. is sorely depleted, but it used to be the National Union of Seamen, that you might remember, the P&O dispute in the early 80s, which affected that union. So we've got mainly ferry workers out there. We've got a lot of bus workers in places like the southwest of England, where there used to be railway companies running the buses. Uh, we've got offshore energy people as well that come from our maritime section. So it's a specialist transport and energy union, but it's dominated by the railway in terms of membership. But it sounds a very key thread to the economy of the country. So when there's a strike, you know it. We've always had that infrastructure side. I mean, our reach, even though we're spread relatively thin, goes from the north of Scotland down to the southwest of Cornwall and all points in between. And we think we're a part of the, a key part of the infrastructure, and that means that we believe in investment in those systems. We believe it should be supported and it should be there for the people. We believe mm. in public ownership of the railway and our transport systems, traditional stuff for the mm. labour movement. There's always a, a lot of noise around pay when it comes to industrial action. And the rhetoric is partly loaded because of the cost of living crisis. So I'll ask you about this first. Last year, the Transport Minister said that the median salary for the rail sector was £44,000 and that it was significantly above the UK median. Do you agree with these figures? No, it's untrue. There's a, there was a famous book, How to Lie with Statistics, uh, a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> a median is when you lay out all the salaries end-to-end -end, from the youngest apprentice on 15000 or whatever it is up to the, the very highest paid people. But the average, where our people cluster around, and I think 70% of them earn less than 33000 we've had those figures from the employers during the negotiation. So... There's an awful lot of our members on salaries between 24 and 32, 33. That's where the vast majority of them cluster. And I think the average salary all in is around about 31, 32,000. But there are some high-paid people. There are train drivers that are higher paid. There are people that are on very poor wages, and there are people, a lot of people in the middle. So our people aren't out of line with national averages of manual workers, if you want to put it that way. We'll get to, into the ticket offices and staffing in a moment. But this industrial action isn't about just pay. What else are you fighting for? Well, the government has got an agenda where they want to make a once-in-a-generation or a permanent change, a sort of reboot of the railway, which is on a low-cost model, which strips out staff, strips out our conditions that we've 
obviously negotiated over decades, maybe even a century or more, when you aggregate it all up. And they're very keen to go for a more stripped-down model, a more akin to the gig economy that we hear about, more akin to what many workers have gone through over the last two or three decades, where you've got nothing besides your hourly rate of pay. Now, we get some, some good stuff in our conditions. We get still get the railway pension, which is a defined benefit scheme, very valuable. We get overtime premiums or restructured pay, which gives us reasonable salaries. We're not like bar workers or many people in retail who struggle. So a lot of it is about defending those conditions. A lot of it is about defending the service uh, because they, they mean to bring in changes that will make the railways less accessible, less friendly, uh, less human. And we want people to just navigate their own way through. If, so if you're a woman working a late shift in the NHS or, or in whatever, you could find the railway a very unfriendly place in the future. If you're disabled or a person with impairments, where you can expect assistance now on a turn-up-and-go basis, which is the way it should be for disabled people, you're not going to get that in the future. You'll have to book it via an app, which isn't much good if you're in mm. your 80s or whatever, mm. and you'll have to expect that you, the railway will give you what they want to give you, what, not what you might demand. And the same goes for ticketing. They'll sell you the tickets they want to sell you through their algorithms, not what a, a, a trained ticket office clerk may be able to do for you mm. of getting you the best value. And a lot of people are, are testifying to that and they're coming out to support us. So you make, lot... it, you make it sound as if the people running the railways don't want a railway at all. Well, they want the money and they get the, of course they get the money no matter what happens. So during COVID, during the pandemic, where we were advised to, well, instructed to stay at home uh, and only 5% of people were travelling. Our members worked. There were very few fares being paid. The railway companies got paid all of their money. Everyone goes on about this subsidy to the railway. It's subsidising private sector operators and the rolling stock leasing company. So there were less trains running, but the rolling stock leasing companies, who people don't hear about in this country, are making profits of £250 million a year, no matter what happens. If there was nobody on the railway or the railways are absolutely rammed, they get the same profits because of these stupid uh, leases that we've got all over our economy now. We've got them in the education sector. We've got them in hospitals. We've got them in the Ministry of Defence, these private finance initiatives. That's what the railway runs on. It runs on filthy lucre, money being swapped uh, between chartered accountants and bankers with strange financial instruments. And they're getting paid. The trouble is that it's so complex. It's really complex. That actually the citizen is very unlikely to ever find out what on earth's going on. Yeah, and much to our shame, it's a thing that was pioneered by the Labour Party, in, in my opinion, under Gordon Brown, all that stuff that is now shown to be a scandal. It's affecting housing because I think the housing associations are being corrupted by these partnerships with developers. It's all over our economy and the ordinary citizen cannot tell what's going on. But what I can tell them is they're all being ripped off. They're not getting the straightforward stuff you got from your water board back in the day. Now even that, the delivery of water and the, the takeaway of sewage is mired in corruption, as well as filth, literally. Uh, there's corruption all over our economy, we believe, and we think it's legal corruption based on these contracts. So I don't think they're very interested in running a railway. They're not the railway... Uh, executives of BR or even the pre-war privatised companies who did have a passion for making money, but also had a passion for restructuring society in some ways. When you first announced industrial action last May, you said it was the biggest endorsement of industrial action by railway workers since privatisation. What was the turnout and the percentage in favour of strikes? Well, we've had three ballots because of the laws. Mandates only run for six months. So since that time, we've had three ballots. 
turnouts have been up in their 70s and 80s percents. We've got to run 15 ballots at a time because there, there were 15 companies, now 14. The turnouts have been very high, uh, way over the government thresholds, which are meant to stop us having action. And the yes votes are eight and nine to one in favour, 80, 90% in favour. So massively high turnouts, big mobilisations. And when we've taken the action, they've been out on the picket lines, campaigning in the communities and really bringing a vibrancy to the action that I think has inspired quite a number of people who've been watching in the other sections of the economy. And now we've got hospital consultants out this week, as well as junior doctors and others that have come in, uh, teachers and so on, that have come into these campaigns. I mean, it is a really unusual event. Yeah, and I think it's the result of, what is it, 12 or more years now since the Osborne Cameron government, where they said austerity was good and the Liberals agreed with them. But we've created this consensus that Starmer is either unwilling or struggling to break himself free from, that you can change society through good investment and that means proper taxation. It means people have got to be taxed appropriately. So if you've got a few bob, to make our society better, you're going to have to give some of that up through progressive taxation. Hmm. I don't understand why progressive politicians, whether they're a liberal or a Labour or even a left-winger, can't make that argument. Because we used to make that argument in the Labour movement. Attlee uh, wasn't from the left of the Labour Party. He was a right-wing person, but he was bold. He was hmm. bold in his own times because he was so steady i think he's a really he's a really remarkable character but he was never afraid to this tell, is clement attlee, yeah, clement was, attlee the, who was leader of the labor party yeah the, after the war and and during the war uh, but he was a very bold politician but he wasn't a lefty he wasn't a corbynite but he did say to the rich you have to give some of this up through what's going to happen to your stately homes and all that what's going to happen to inheritance taxes, which are, again, at risk this weekend. We're seeing that, that they're saying the rich will remain rich. Do you ever conjure Attlee and the rest of it in interviews? Because a lot of people won't even know who he is. Yeah, I try to, but they're very brief. They get you on, they line you up for 10 minutes, and they give you three minutes and say, (laughs) we've got to cover some dog that's being rescued from a tree. I know a bit about that trade. (laughs) Yeah, and they seem to put too much, especially on Radio 4 in the mornings, they put too many items in Hmm. and spend too long talking about themselves, to be honest, to get to the heart of it. I do try to get it in there because I think these previous generations of Labour reformers, very strong reformers, they were not from a Marxist or a, a, a radical tradition. Well, I suppose they were radical in their senses of the, the Methodist and Baptist background some of them might have had. But they were interesting because they knew what a mission was. And I don't think the, the current uh, set of progressives have that idea of a mission that when you've done your five or 10 or 15 years, the country is going to be different to the way you, you found it when you came into power. And we need that, I think. You've described the government as puppet masters uh, who've shackled the rail companies in the proposals they're bringing to the table. Who exactly is in the room with you for these negotiations? Well, mainly it's a thing called the Rail Delivery Group, the employers' group that they get together. They're commanded to be in it. They have to be in it by government contract. But they tell me openly, and they sit as far away as we are now, sitting around, there's only four or five of us in there normally, we cannot do anything. We cannot make any proposal or amend the text of this document until the DFT, the Department for Transport, and up to the Prime Minister himself in his red box sees this document and gives their approval. So it's a tortuous process, which has ground to a halt now. When the the train operating companies were operating on their own on a franchise, they had something at risk because it was their money that was being lost through the fares every day. So they had a motivation 
to try and get a deal. They might take some pain on a strike and then they would get into serious negotiation to try and get a settlement because they were losing money. In this campaign, in this industrial action, they lose no money. They've had a billion pound in subsidy. And we think, and it's not been denied by the government, we've put it to them, that the economy has lost five billion through hospitality, business disruption and all the rest of it. Now, we don't revel in that. We don't want that to happen. But I think the public needs to understand this is a completely false dispute. And the minister said in the Transport Select Committee in the Commons that we could have settled this for a much cheaper price than we've paid through fighting it. But that's been the case going back to the miner strike and others, other big disputes. So well, uh, Last spring, you called off a couple of strikes following a proposal from the Rail Delivery Group and there were further meetings. What went wrong? Well, they never made the progress that we wanted and mainly it's the conditions that they put on us. They say you can have this very modest proposal. Now, our members haven't had a pay rise for four years uh, since before the start of COVID and obviously we want to get some some catch-up in this process. Our members are realists, but they say for even this modest proposal, which is 9% over those four years, you have to give up everything. So they said to us, you have to agree to the station uh, cutbacks, the ticket office closures, and we want you to sign a document that you won't campaign against them, that you'll sit on your hands and watch it happen. They said at one stage that we'll have to accept driver-only operations, so the removal of guards from all trains all over the, the British network. And we simply can't do that. That would be totally against everything we believe in. And other bits and pieces in there which... Believe in for safety or for keeping your union numbers up? Well, both we don't mind saying that we want to protect our members' jobs. That is that is my job as a General Secretary, to protect my people. But we do believe earnestly that it's safer to have guards on trains. And it's not about opening and closing the doors. It's about people feeling secure at all hours. It's about what happens... When you get disruption, we've had guards that have led people up the tracks while traffic's been moving. We've had fires on trains. We've had all sorts of things. We've had drivers that have been incapacitated, either through accident or through their own illness. I mean, drivers get taken ill and have heart attacks and all the rest of it, like everyone else. And we think it's vital that on these services, there should be guards there. So we believe in it. We've always believed in it. And we'll keep campaigning on it. And we can't just roll over and say, well, we accept everything we used to reject. Both sides in this dispute, the RMT, your union, and the Rail Delivery Group, are saying that they're willing to enter further negotiations. If that's the case, why isn't it happening? Well, I would go any time. I would leave this room and go to a negotiation, despite wanting your company, John. But, well, well, hold uh, up for just 10 minutes. Yeah, I've got, <laughs> I've got uh, somebody who wants to be a counterpart in those talks. So we always say we're available. It's up to them to say, look, come on over. We'll see if we can rework what we've done. We know there's not going to be a radical intervention where somebody's going to walk in and say, here's a load of money. We have to work up some solutions given the positions that both sides have got. We understand each other's positions, but the government ultimately has to give an amber light, if you like, to get get a settlement constructed. But you're suggesting, in a way, that there's a bit of a conspiracy going on. You've said that the government is paying the operators to face down the RMT, your union, in this dispute. Can you explain that? Well, it's absolutely true. In the in the contracts that these companies have, they're not franchises anymore. They have passenger service contracts. They ripped them up during COVID because the company said, we don't want them. We can't make any money. It's all over those contracts. It says the Secretary of State is responsible for the negotiating mandate of the train operating companies and for their management of the actual dispute. So they give the instructions directly and they can only make proposals that... Um, 
the Secretary of State approves of in detail. And in return for that, every time there's industrial action, the train operating companies get paid. It's a remark- So it's not a conspiracy, it's a contract. We've seen the contract, it's in the public domain. It amazes me the amount of journalists who won't go and look at those contracts. <laughs> Even people like The Guardian and The Indy, people that are meant to be more progressive and, and a bit more uh, sceptical about the government, they're, we've put them on our website. You can go and read them. And it, so the return, the quid pro quo is they do what the, the government tells them, uh, and in return for that, they get paid no matter what happens. The rail companies have said that they want to give their people a pay rise but cite a 30% shortfall in revenue. And June's passenger report said that journeys were still down from three years ago. Do you believe that they really do want to give a pay rise? And do you think passenger numbers can ever return to pre-COVID times? I think the people that we deal with do want to give a pay rise, and they would give one if they were free to run their business the way they see fit. They might put some stipulations on it that we'd find uncomfortable. I think we'd get there. The government is seeking to make an example of the RMT in the face of all the other people because I think we've shown people that you can campaign and put up resistance. So they're not keen to do it and there has to be a price to pay, which is what I've dealt with already. So I think a deal is there, but they won't give it at any price. So we've got to work that through with them. But we've also got to show that we're not... How long, oh Lord? How long is this going to go on? Well, I don't know. If I could put a time on that, I'd be a... You know, I'd have insight and I might go off and do the lottery or the pools <laughs> this week, but it's not it's not going to be very very quick, um, I fear. But you never know. They've they've put some stuff to the teaching unions and others this week that is far better than what they've offered the RMT over the last year or two. So we'll see what happens. I'll I'll make myself available. There could be an answer, but we'd have to see whether anybody's prepared to work it up. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow, and we'll be right back after this. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, the government and the rail companies have said that the RMT needs to recognize the way passengers use the railway has changed for good and work with them to adapt and secure long-term future for your industry. One of the proposals is the closure of ticket offices. What would that really mean, and what's the timeline? Yeah, well, we we have adapted. I mean, this area where we're sitting in is the coal drops, so you don't move coal on the railway anymore. We're at the back of King's Cross. Yeah, there were probably 100,000 people moving coal around this country at one stage for all sorts of reasons, to power people's homes and power industry and all the rest of it. And so we have adapted. We've we've lost members and we've adapted to new technology. The railways are completely different to the way they were, even at the point of privatisation. So we will deal with that. But we won't accept imposition 
and the ripping up of everything we we believe in and everything we've fought for and everything that we enjoy in our contracts. So we do recognise the change that's happened. We recognise different retail practices online through apps and through all sorts of things. But that doesn't mean you can't have a modern retail offer, as we call it, in the station that's adapted to new techniques, but is also there to serve the public who pay for this. But the the, the rail delivery group said last year only 12% of rail tickets were sold in ticket offices anyway. Well, we're sceptical about the 12%. Most ticket offices that I see, and we're getting sent loads of pictures, are <laughs> rammed out. There are people queuing out the door because you get the better advice. And if you only use their... their um, apps and what have you, you'll only get the ticket that they want to sell you for a particular time, whereas a a ticket office specialist will give you the best value if they can. So the people that are most affected are the people who struggle with new technology. Mm. Visitors to our country, which everybody seems to be overlooking, but we like visitors to our country. They bring us money. They bring money to the railway. And they need assistance with travel and they need assistance with where they're going. Disabled people need accessibility. And what station ticket offices mean, it's the only thing that is regulated about station staffing. And once they remove what are they called these Schedule 17 regulations, which is what is being consulted on now, there will be no rules or laws about how a station, any station, whether it's King's Cross or Glasgow Central or wherever, or your local uh, town or village station, there'll be no rules whatsoever. They don't have to staff any station if they don't want to and if it doesn't make them money or or they're under pressure to do it. So what we have to do in this consultation is put them under loads of pressure, which they are feeling because I think hundreds of thousands of people are getting involved in the campaign to keep the railway in some semblance as a human system for humans to use. So you had a, a day of protests at ticket offices last week. What kind of feedback were you getting from the public? We are getting masses of support. We are getting people that are coming out Uh, I'm doing meetings all over the country. I'm off to Manchester tomorrow. I'm up to Berwick at the end of the week. People are mobilising en masse, not through our instruction, as a response. We're working with them, but I'm, I'm going out to sell out meetings in various towns around the place. People are coming out on the street, making their own signs, because they've seen the way their high street goes. They see what happens when your library, your your old folks' home, or your local pub or whatever is just shut down. And as particularly as we've seen lately, um, post offices and community outlets and community forums and focal points like that. And they don't want their station to go the same way. Now, we could offer more community services at our stations, mm. especially in village uh, and town stations. That would be the modern retail uh, sort of thing I'd like to see, where it's they can't just close it down because it belongs to the people. Well, that seems to chime to some extent with the public. Why should they also care, though, about rail workers' pay and conditions? Well, because you want to know that somebody's there. You want to know somebody who's got a decent job, who's got the responsibilities and duties to look after people under things like the Disability Discrimination Act, where you've got we've got this thing, the social mo- model of accessibility and disability, where if you are using a wheelchair or, or, or some assistance, you shouldn't have to book. You should expect that when the train comes, you're able to use the ramps to get in that you can get across that bridge or whatever it is you need. You're guided around the station. And there should be people who know what they're doing, are properly vetted, and that those people are getting a decent wage. I don't quite understand in this country what's wrong with people who get decent wages. That's where we get a lot of venom online. Why should you get this money? And when I say to people, well, they're getting about £26,000. 
to do this job on shift work through the year, they say, oh, I thought they were train drivers. Well, no, the driver's driving the train. So we need a society where people are properly rewarded and they enjoy their jobs. I think that makes our country better so that your care worker, if you're getting on or if you're worried about your elderly parents, if you're out working, you know that the care worker is properly motivated, being rewarded properly, isn't harassed. And that's, I think we need that model throughout our services, just in the NHS, care, education. When you send your kids or your grandkids to school, you'd like to think that the people that are looking after your children for a third of their daily life are getting a proper reward, properly trained and are secure in their employment. Well, now the strikes bill is back in Parliament as we speak. Mm. What is the government proposing and why did the House of Lords send it back? Well, bishops and all sorts of people that sit in the House of Lords are objecting to this. What we're faced here with is the conscription of labour and the International Labour Organisation, another body people have never heard of, which is a part of the UN or attached to the UN, has condemned this. And what they'll be saying to us, if we get through all the hurdles we've, we've got to do to get lawful industrial action, when we actually get to take the action, they'll say to our signalers and guards and drivers and others, you must come to work because now we're going to run the trains. All the health service, all the schools, no matter what you do under a lawful ballot, we're now going to make it illegal for you as an individual or a cluster of individuals to go on strike. So they'll say to these signal workers in the signal centre, you've got to go to work. So that is the conscription of labour. And if you don't go, they will sack the individual in a lawful ballot. They could uh, shut down the union, fine us through uh, massive fines. We don't even know what they are. And we don't know all the legal consequences, but they will issue formal notices uh, and they could use bailiffs, I presume, at the end to make people go to work. Well, the government's own assessment of the bill recognised that weakening the power of unions could have a downward effect on terms and conditions in the labour market more generally. Should we be worried? And do you think the bill is going to get royal assent anytime soon? Well, they've got a built-in majority, despite what they're going to lose this week. I think it's down to 70 now. And so there are a lot of fervent right-wing people in the Tory party who want this, who wanted strikes to be made illegal entirely. It won't work. What will happen is novel forms of industrial action that are probably more disruptive, that don't come through maybe don't go through the formal union channel. So it make it harder to control people. People in any society have never given up striking. We saw that in Poland in the early 80s when people had to defy the state to get their voice heard. And wherever, it is ironic, wherever around the, the world people are going against oppressive states, it's normally organised labour that's at the very front of that. And this is part of becoming an oppressive state. I don't, I'm not going to over-egg that pudding. I don't think we're in... Uh, behind the Iron Curtain or anything like that. But it's it's a regressive step. Well, I mean, Labour's Keir Starmer has said he would repeal anti-trade union legislation yeah. if Labour forms the next government. Is it just the strikes bill he's talking about? Or is there policy that's more substantial? There is policy that's more substantial, to be fair. Um, it's got a new deal for workers. And if you remember the P&O dispute, which was about 15 months ago, well, it wasn't a dispute, the hmm. P&O dismissals, of 15 months ago, they sacked everybody and the, the laws that were in place were so weak, uh, there was no protection for those people. So there are a raft of laws about individual workers' rights that they can enforce for themselves if you're in a non-union environment. But there are also collective measures that they're going to bring to, to assist unions to enforce rights, to make 
our negotiations better, to get recognition better, and a whole host of things that we hope will be progressive about agency workers, about the minimum wage, about getting recognition. And all, whether you're in a union environment or not, if you've got strong union movement in your country, everybody will benefit, especially in traditional hourly paid and uh, manual type of work, whether it's retail, whether it's out on a building site or in a manufacturing environment. If unions are there with sectoral bargaining and that type of stuff, it does benefit everyone ultimately. And even in broadcast media, John, where we've seen... <laughs> Uh, I speak to crew when I'm going into interviews. They're all fed up with the way they're treated, all being put into casual terms and conditions. Everybody's had to go self-employed. Whereas 20, 30 years ago, uh, when, when it was at its peak, everybody was on a proper contract of employment with a pension and some rights, and now nobody's got any rights. Well, Keir Starmer also said recently that Labour is the natural home for working people. What do you think about the state of their house? What are you going to be pushing them to do? Well, I'm part of a trend in the trade union movement who who is not affiliated to Labour for all sorts of reasons, going back to the Iraq war and stuff <laughs> like that. We haven't got time to do that one, but all sorts of reasons about the way it went under Blair. Isn't it time you perhaps forgot all that and uh, got on with well, we do teaming it. up? We do debate it, but what we've decided to do is be a bit more cynical, if I can put it that way, and clinical, that we will support politicians when they do what we think is in the interest of the people. And you've got to remember the picture is now different. You've got assemblies in Scotland, and, or government in Scotland and assembly in Wales that has got powers over transport, which is our interest, and other matters, and that may develop further. So we've got to uh, convince and have dialogue, but put pressure on the SNP, Welsh Labour, which is now a slightly different entity. There are regional mayors that are becoming more important that we think will be more important. So we need to not just be in the wake of the Labour Party the way we traditionally were. And we will put them under a lot of pressure so that he has to deliver and his team has to deliver. But the noises that Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer was making this weekend is it's going to be a sort of an identity kit with certainly the fiscal policies of of the current Tory party, which I don't think will satisfy anyone in the Labour movement, but also won't satisfy campaigners for public services and a change in our society. Because if you're not telling, warning the rich that you might need to tax them a bit more, you're not going to have any money to rescue our services, which I think people want. This November sees the 30th anniversary of the privatisation of the railways. I don't need to tell you that, mm. but a lot of people may not know it. Labour pledged to press ahead with re-nationalising the railways at its conference last year. Are you confident this policy will make it into the Labour manifesto? No, I'm not. It's still the policy, and we are campaigning hard. I'm not convinced that the people who are currently pushing the policy, who the shadow cabinet, will all be in place the morning after the election, because you've seen purges of uh, covering politics. The following morning, you often end up with a different real cabinet than the shadow cabinet was in the day before. And people who might be very useful in the campaign, and I'm not going to name them, uh, of convincing working-class people who may not have the same jobs when it comes to the allocation of important portfolios. So we will have to keep pushing. But I do think now is the time for public ownership because people are fed up with the rampant corruption, as I see it. If you take the NHS, the NHS is now being consumed by private sector operators, including American healthcare companies, who are ripping our NHS to bits. It's not the NHS that it was 10 years ago, and it's certainly not the NHS it was 20 years ago. And Blair 
was on the airwaves yesterday morning saying that the NHS has to deal with the private sector more openly, i.e. it has to be more privatised. And that man still has a lot of influence. His agent is acting right inside the middle of the Labour Party, Peter Mandelson, and he will be pushing this agenda just as hard as the trade unions will be from one side. There will be the Mandelsonites and the Blairites pushing from the other side to say, let's go back into a semi-market or full market adaptation of many of our public services. Well, you're the first person to have mandalicised the conversation that I've heard in a long time. Well, it's there. You see it all the time. I went to the London Labour Party conference last year and he was on the top table basking in his role as somebody that's come back to the, uh, the inner circle of Starmer. And he's there. That's why Labour left-wingers, even moderate left-wingers, are being purged from selections all around the country at the moment. And there won't be a left wing of the Labour Party if they get their choice, get their way. We've got to address Brexit quickly, although you can't address Brexit quickly, but we will attempt to. Some have claimed that the RMT's support for Brexit was driven largely by an opposition to the EU's fourth railway package. Can you explain why you think this regulation would hinder the renationalisation of Britain's railways? Well, our view of that document, and we campaigned very hard on it, it's a statute, it's almost a constitutional element now in the European Union. If you're a member, you have to sign up to that and you have to implement it. And in a lot of European railways at the moment, Austria, Spain, Italy, Germany and France, all the important ones, Sweden, the national rail operator has to open up and allow competition. So it has to allow other low-cost people to come in and run services alongside them. It's slower than it was here. There wasn't a doomsday or a D-Day anniversary. It's a thing that's creeping up. And we don't like that for obvious reasons that I'm not going to restate. We want public ownership in the hands of the, the state and in the hands of the people. But we believe that is going to happen to many public services in Europe, that there will be similar packages in education and in healthcare and other matters. Now, a lot of people argue we had that in England anyway, and it's true But it's not in the Constitution. Following Maastricht and Lisbon, these things are mandatory in every state. And you cannot resile from them. You cannot say, well, we're uh, a particular country. We're not going to go with that. You have to sign up to it and you have to implement it. You can resist it for a while and defer it. I accept that. And our union took the traditional left position that goes back to Ben and others in the 70s, that we don't see the European Union as a progressive state. It had some good aspects. And our view is if it stayed as the EEC, which is a trading body and a a standards body, if you like, that allowed people to sell and buy things and implement things across the, the, the all of Europe, that probably would have been satisfactory. But we didn't like the way it was going. Now, I accept that it's not satisfactory now because of the way the ultra right in the Tory party have taken that. And there are some very regrettable things that have happened. I don't think it needed to go there. But we were asked a question and our belief was that um, because of what they were going to do to transport, and it wasn't just rail, it was ferry services. The Scottish government always told us we cannot take Scottish ferries back into public ownership on the Highlands and Islands because of the European directives on liberalisation. So that's what our position is based on. But I do accept it's a very regrettable position we're in now and the effects, some of the negative effects on the economy. Well, I can understand the desire right at the heart of what you're really on about, which is the renationalisation of the railways and for sovereignty and decisions that affect our services. But does UK sovereignty not depend too heavily 
on the government in power caring about workers' rights. It does, yeah, but many workers' rights were introduced before the European Union, so the Health and Safety at Work Act, one of our most important things, was introduced by the Heath government in the early 70s before the EU had all these powers. The Factories Act and all those things that are really important uh, came in... You mean Europe's embraced and now overtaken what we have? Yeah, and of course all of the anti-trade union laws that we have in this country that have shackled the unions came on top of us while we were in the EU. So those net things never were never affected or ameliorated by the EU. There is the Hours Act, the uh, European Directive on Working Time, but we've adopted that. We've taken it with us. We haven't improved it. And now, of course, the Starmer government can bring in any law that they like. And there is a view that much of the Corbyn and McDonnell man- manifesto that they campaigned on twice may have been Uh, come up against European directives, particularly public ownership of the railways, because they could have taken it into rail, uh, public ownership, and then as soon as they'd done that, would have had to open it up to competition from European providers. And they probably would have been challenged by the private sector. We've got problems about European subsidy for state entities as well, that they they cannot be subsidised while you're in the European Union. Well, let's go back to exactly what brought you into this studio. This dispute has been going on for a year now, and you reballoted members about industrial action in May. Is the support for industrial action still as strong as when you began? Well, it's still there. The most recent ballot on that, which was in the face of the offer that we had, uh, has come in very strongly. It is a struggle for our members. They've lost a lot of money, lost their wages. It's tough being a trade unionist, being on strike. I mean, the, the media isn't friendly, and they make us out to be... Or, you know, people that have been beamed in from somewhere else. They, my members of ordinary men and women in their communities have got the same responsibilities as everyone else, but they are determined to keep the campaign going. And in many ways, these announcements of massive job losses uh, amongst our complement in the last few weeks has steeled them again because we can expect more waves of this stuff going on. But we'll see what we can do. The government has now devolved all these talks into each of the 14 companies, so that makes it a bit harder to deal with resource-wise. But we're still there. We've got action coming up on the National Railway and on London Underground on very similar issues. We're available to talk. If somebody wants to create a deal with us, we'll look at the deal and we'll put it to our people and see if they want to support it. Now, finally, Mick, you don't like talking about yourself, but there's a biography. The Makings of a Working Class Hero, set to be published Yeah, without next any year. involvement of anyone in the RMT, by the way, or me, or, or my you. family. What do you make of the interest in you personally? There are montages of you destroying politicians and interviewers like me all over the internet. Well, I don't revel in it. I'm, I'm a private person. I'm quite assertive in my delivery and when I'm talking to people. Hopefully that brings results for our members and gets the union some respect. But I've got no interest in being a celebrity. I'd like to do deals and go back to running my union in a quiet day and every now and again being dragged out about an issue to comment. So it's not something that interests me, and I'm not interested in that biography or creating that kind of legacy. I just want to be known as somebody that did their job in the way it should be done. And then I can go back to, you know, having a quiet life, hopefully. Well, Mick Lynch, I've really enjoyed talking with you. Uh, It's been revealing and also encouraging, I think. Uh, I hope it hasn't been too grim for you. Very enjoyable. Thank you very much. That was Mick Lynch, General Secretary of the RMT, making his case for the current rail dispute. 
If you enjoyed the conversation and want to read more about the industrial dispute and the strikes bill, you'll find links in the episode description. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. I'll be sharing another episode next week, so please subscribe on your platform of choice and spread the word. Tell your friends. Goodbye for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.